Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 108th episode of MTG Fast Finance, the podcast that's celebrating 25 years of bitching about set design. MTG Fast Finance is your weekly podcast covering the world of Magic the Gathering, finance, collection management, and speculation. A quick message from our sponsor, Face-to-Face Games. Face-to-FaceGames.com provides competitive pricing on Magic singles and sealed product with shipping to both the U.S. and Canada. Check out Face-to-Face card pricing via mtgprice.com, whether building your deck or stockpiling a spec. I'm your host, James Jilcott, a.k.a. at MDG Critic on Twitter. My co-host tonight, as always, is Travis Allen, a.k.a. at Wizard Mumpin. And we're here to help you guys make and save money playing our favorite game, Magic the Gathering. Good afternoon, James. Good afternoon, Travis. <laughs> and good afternoon to all of our listeners. Uh, glad to be here and looking forward to uh, sharing another great episode with you guys. Our show is sponsored by mtgprice.com, the leading MTG finance community. Sign up today at mtgprice.com to manage your collection, track your specs, and read articles by some of the best financial minds in the hobby. So you want to break down our segments for the good folks at home, Travis? Sure, James. This week, we have a show in four parts. Segment one is our top movers. We'll talk about the cards that have moved the most in price this week. Segment two, our cards to watch. James and I will outline some of the cards that we think may see a rise in price. Segment three is our metagame week in review. We're going to talk about the uh, MTGO championships, which are running as we speak. And segment four, our topic of the week, the full Masters 25 spoilers out. We will look at what showed up, what didn't show up, and what that means for you. So let's start segment one, our top movers. First card of the week, Raging Ravine from World Wake. Uh, Non-foils bumped from 13 to 25. Not quite a double up, but pretty close. Definitely partly, definitely because it didn't show up in Masters 25. Um, if you look across the board, you'll see Celestial Colonnade, Creeping Tar Pit, and Rage and Ravine all bumped up a little bit. Rage and Ravine got the biggest bump, probably because Jund has also come out of the gate pretty strong with Blood Braves unbanning. So Rage and Ravine uh, is pretty healthy, $25 now. And honestly, I think it could keep going. Uh, there's still only the World Wake printing, not a lot of copies out there. Uh, and it's when we talk about when we look at the MTGO championships a little later, you'll see Jund is a really big part of the metagame right now. So I could see Raging Ravine push up to Celestial Colonnade status. Yeah, I guess that's not completely uh, impossible. Uh, I'm not sure. How many copies of the Jund list even running of this card? Mm, I don't have any up in front of me, but they usually are between two to four. Let me let's see if I can find one here. Uh, so this guy has two. This guy has three. Uh this guy has three. This guy has three. So you probably don't hit four too often, uh, but you definitely are getting two to three regularly. You're not typically running one. Yeah. All right. So, I mean, there's definitely room to grow because all the conditions that apply to Colonnade apply to Ravine. Um, and it's not like Colonnade is in a whole bunch of decks in Modern. It's really just in the resurgent Jeskai and, and Blue-White control builds that have kind of reasserted themselves as a, a reasonable position in a pretty broad meta. Yeah. I, 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 yeah. Uh, Colonnade sort of has a little bit more of that. Blue-white cards always seem to ha- carry some sort of a cachet that other colors don't because people seem to enjoy those. Uh, they're a little more regal almost in the sen- in the magic atmosphere. Um but, you know, Jund is suddenly a much bigger part of Modern than it was. People are going to need these cards. Uh, you know, they're, Jund, it won't be the only Bloodbraid deck. So I, the rare case where I actually like the future outlook for one of our cards in the top mover slot. Sure. All right. So next on the list, we've got uh, Sliver Queen, a, the, the reserve list legendary sliver that makes extra slivers. Moving from 38 to, in theory, $75. I'm not sure if the market price has caught up to that yet. But as a playable reserve list card, um, I'm not too, too surprised to see people buying these up. No, uh, it was it's <clears throat> it was a little pricey of a buy-in at $40-something a piece. Uh, but realistically, I, I guess I guess if there's any card that's going to test the ceiling on how much casual players will play pay for a card, Silver Queen's probably a good one. Um, you know, will casual players pay $80 for it? I, I don't know. Maybe. Uh, it's one hell of a card to headline your sliver deck. Um, 
And people are definitely interested in this spike. I walked out of Rackball the other day and like all 10 Sliver Queens I had listed online were purchased. So people have faith in this. Will they sell at 70 and 80? I don't know. Uh, but they are gone at 40 something. Yeah. I mean, the reality is if you want to play a Sliver deck in EDH, um, you probably want to pick up a, a copy of Sliver Queen. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's hard to not want to, not hard to not own this card if you are into EDH in general. Um, it's a pretty good card. Uh, okay. Next up is, uh, boy, we're going to get a lot of these today. Gendor Saddlebags, Arabian Nights card, non-foil, 10 to 22. It's an Arabian Nights rare. These are all over the place this week. Who cares? Uh, after that, Aldrazi Obligator from Oath of the Gatewatch. Foils up from 2 to 450. Now, this was in a modern deck. Uh, was it was it the Eldrazi deck or was it some sort of like red green beast deck that had Obligator in it? I don't remember. Do you? It's a re- it's a red green uh, Eldrazi deck. It was red green. Did, did, okay. did well did well at a recent tournament. Yeah, yeah, and uh, Obligator is an interesting an interesting take on that. Uh, but you know, steal their Tarmogoy for Blood Raid or whatever, and hit them in the face with it. So. Uh, yeah, I, I don't think that you're going to see foils much more than four fifty or five bucks. And if I had them, I'd sell them probably a little too narrow of an Eldrazi to, to really get a lot of room. People forget that when Eldrazi winter went down, it was a blue red Eldrazi deck that took that field and they were running four obligators as well. And I picked up a bunch at a dollar back then. Um, and they've since been sitting in the trash pile. Uh, and I don't expect to be able to exit them very easily now, but I may as well put up, you know, $16 sets on eBay and see if they move the, um, you know, this two to four fifty move is after already going from a dollar to two. When I first called it out, when I saw it on camera, um, maybe two weeks ago, I think it was. And to really make, get anything out of this, you got to get up into the five, six, seven, eight dollars a copy, um, to make it worth your time to be focused on getting rid of them. Yeah, I mean, at this point, I would say the ship has pretty much sailed. Uh, if you're going to be buying foil Eldrazi, it should not be Obligator. But it's it's kind of like Lantern Control. The first time we saw it, we didn't see a lot of cards spike from it because people assumed it was going to be just stay on the fringes. As it started to show up in more and more top eights, then you started to see cards appreciate. So if this, you know, you've got two guys in the world running red, green Eldrazi, and they're not top eighting very often, then... This card's going to lose momentum in reverse course. But if you see it show up on camera again, or he had done done something at the online championships this weekend or something, then you might start to see movement. Well, I don't have the list in front of me. Did it play uh, Reality Smasher and Thought Not Seer? I believe so. Yeah. So, I mean, it's it's going to be uh, going to be hard for me to recommend Eldrazi other than those two, I think, at least for the time being. Yeah. All right. What do you got next for us? So next on the list, we've got D-Glamour from Morning Tide. Yeah, yes. D-Glamour and it's Morning Tide, yeah. I, I have no idea what this card does. Uh, this was a, uh, it's a naturalized effect, but it shuffles the artifactor enchantment back into their deck rather than destroy it. Interesting. Yeah. So this is a popper card? I, I mean, it's a common foil a little more than doubled. I don't know who else would use it. Uh, I I don't know why you would be playing this in like modern or legacy as opposed to just any of the other removal spells. Yeah, let's let's go with popper. My at this point and, and in time, every time I see a common card whose price spike, I'm just writing popper <laughs> down because like sure. you're probably right. I mean, the, the people are targeting popper like they've targeted other things, and they just keep going down the list, right? So the next two are the same thing. Guardian of the Guild Pack from Dissension. The foils moving from $2 to $5. Popper. Viridian Longbow. Foils moving from $8.50 to $22. That's pretty pricey for a foil common. Uh, Popper. Uh, Is Viridian Longbow a common though? I thought it was uncommon. Mm, uh, Well, let's see. It may have been reprinted too. Uh, No, it was a common from Mirrodin. Yep. Yep. This so this common, also gives, common common common. This also gives the prodigal sorcerer effect to cards. That's what the longbow does. Is an equipped creature has tap deal one damage. So there was probably additional demand for this as well. Prodigal sorcerer was a constant casual fan favorite. Um, so there, you know there, you probably had some of that demand existing for this card already, and then it also happens to be useful in popper. Sure. 
Uh, so after that, you've got Junjun Efri, another Arabian Nights card, like 30 to 90, whatever. It's an Arabian Nights card. Axelrod Gunnarsson, 750 to 250, a Legends card. No, on. Hmm? no from 750 to 25. Oh, 750 to 25. Thank you. Uh, yeah. I mean, the thing like the thing is uh, the what are these prices moved to on all of these like antiquities legends cards or like I don't know, right? Like they they haven't none of these are selling at these new prices yet. So it's just whatever that most expensive or the cheapest copy that someone relists on TCG player is. Um so uh, your your guess is as good as mine what they'll actually sell for. Uh I haven't really been I haven't really been doing a lot of research to see like, well, what about those antiquity cards that spiked six months ago? Like, where did they end up? What are they actually selling for? I know some of the popular ones have really moved. Um, you know, uh, Juzam Dijin has certainly pushed up uh, and some cards of that nature. You know, I sold a living plane the other day for $150 and almost fell out of my chair. Um, Island of Wak Wak, I, like I sold copies at 175 which was also sort of staggering. Uh, so some of the stuff is moving, I, but I don't know where all of these cards are going to end up with. And it was Junjun Afri, Axelrod Gunnarsson, Bronze Tablet from Antiquities, 350 to 14, Elven Riders from Legends, 5 to 20. Feels like these guys are really scraping the bottom of the barrel, but there you go. Yeah, I mean, we've seen other things. Gaia's Cradle, The Abyss have, have shown real strong price appreciation and people that were holding sets um, or had pieces of the stuff in their collections have seen very good returns this year. Yeah. Um, but as we've said many times, the, the lesser stuff is going to be so hard to unload that if you happen to have a couple copies around, great. You might be able to play into a nice buy list order at some point soon here. Um, but there's no rush. Like the collection that I, my cousin essentially gifted me last summer that just showed up in a box is full of these kind of cards and I'm not selling anything out of it because there's no rush to do so. I got other things that, that need to be sold within certain time frames because they have a chance of reprint. Whereas those cards are, you know, whether or not something goes from 25 to 75 is neither here nor there. Once it leaves 25, it probably settles 35, 40, 45, 50 even if it doesn't hold the 75 plateau. So no need to rush if it's on the reserve list. Yeah. The nice things. Yeah. The nice thing about that is that even if they're not on the reserve list, it doesn't really matter. Right. Like, uh, you know, Axelrod Gunnarsson and Jujun Efri, like, I don't even know if they're on the reserve list, but it doesn't matter because people aren't buying these because they're, they're there's only one printing of it. They're buying it because it's the original printing, you know, the blackboard original printing, and they could put these in every set from here until the day magic dies. And like the original copies are still going to be the original collector's copies. So you're absolutely right. Like this, there's no re- need to get rid of them at, at the moment. You, know, you might as well hold on to them because they're only going to get scarcer. Yep. Well, and the thing is that like some of the, one of the topics that's very rarely explored uh, in the MTG finance community is this concept of cards that are virtually on the reserve list because they're so weird or badly templated or so out of keeping with the power level of today's cards, either too high or too low that they're just not going to reprint it. They're not particularly nostalgia focused cards that that could have made it into M25. They are, you know, super odd, um, versions of themes that they don't like to revisit they have weird names you know any number of different reasons there are plenty more cards that are actually on the reserve list that are never going to see the light of day again yeah uh exactly all right so then we get to echoing decay foils from a dollar to about five dollars that's a pretty big gain on a popper card if you have a couple of those sitting around maybe trade into your local popper community pillage seventh edition foils moving from 250 to 20 I mean, 7th edition foils are constantly targeted as a black-bordered core set uh, with particularly nice foils. Um, You know, bravo to you if you've been collecting them through the years because they've all seen pretty solid appreciation the last couple of years too. Uba Mask from Champions of Tarkir moving from 450 to 38. Is that that what I said? (laughs) Champions of of Kamigawa. I mean, those sets feel the same to me thematically, but that's another topic. The, um, yeah, I have no idea why this thing went to 40. Um, Champions of Kamigawa is a ways back now, so the foils are pretty hard to come by. Um, No idea. I'm not sure either, and I I didn't get an answer when I asked if somebody sucked this in a deck. It's not the worst effect. Um, It's kind of interesting. I know I saw it pop up in a vintage list a while ago. I don't know if it's supposed to be like Jace tech. Because it's kind of weird. Let me tell you guys what it does. It's a four mana artifact. 
if a player would draw a card, they exile it instead. And then everyone can play cards that they exiled with Ubermask this turn. So, like, if you draw cards, you immediately exile them. And then until the end of turn, you can play those cards. But then they're not in your hand anymore after that. Like, they're just gone. You can't play them again. So, I guess if you play this, like, against Jace and then they brainstorm, they just exile those cards. And if they don't cast them now, they don't get them. It's like a neuter's brainstorm effects. But I don't know. It was a four mana artifact. I, I, I don't know who's so, that doesn't seem like a good deck against Jace that, but that's just the first place my thought went. This is the kind of card that makes me want to go check what Saffron posted lately. But as far as I'm, I know I'm up to speed on that. I don't think he posted Uba mask. So moving right along. Yeah. Uh, after that is serrated arrows from time spiral foils from two to whatever number you want. We have 20 written down. I don't know. I think the cheapest copy on TCG is like 40 or some nonsense. Who cares? Uh, but this should be another popper card. Serrated arrows is actually pretty powerful in that format, as I understand it. Uh, and these are the only foil serrated arrows, as far as I know, right? Wasn't printed anywhere else. Yeah, because the original was back in the days of non-foil. Yeah, and uh, it also... Uh, well, that's not true. There's an FNM serrated arrows. There's an FNM serrated arrows, but the time spiral one is the original art, I guess. Um, yeah. So there you go. Uh, I guess yeah, it's just, time, time. Is this legal and popper? Because it was an uncommon in homelands. Then it was an, and it was an anthologies, which doesn't have rarity FNM, which doesn't have rarity. It was time shifted, which is its own rarity. I guess it was printed in dual decks as a common. I don't know what the rules for popper is. Like, does printing this in a dual deck at common mean it's a common? I guess so. I would imagine as much. I don't know how else, why anyone else would care about this card other than the popper people. Yeah, I mean, the next two are popper too. Laguna Band Trailblazer from uh, Journey into Nyx. Foils moving from a dollar to ten dollars. Pulled a Korean one of those the other day, so I'm going to see if I can unload it at ten dollars. So that would be a surprise. Mm-hmm. Um, swirling sandstorm from Judgment got a foil of that sitting around too. Um, so I'll report back if I manage to sell it. In theory, it went from fifty cents to five dollars for a whopping fifteen hundred percent gain. Um, well, thirty cents to five dollars, yeah. But again, hard to make money on cards like that. So, and you might want it for your popper collection. I uh, I am all about buying korean foils for my popper deck <laughs> well i mean are you i'm surprised that people are buying foils for their popper deck <laughs> isn't that again isn't this counter to the concept of the yeah, format which yeah we've had this conversation like every week for the last four weeks so yeah Ma- magic players just can't help themselves it, even even though foils are probably the worst version of premium in many many ways and they desperately need a replacement we're just stuck on this this repetitive track on the record yep. Uh, all right, let's move along. Segment two, cards to watch. James, why don't you get us started? All right, let's talk about some cards that make sense <laughs> to purchase. Um, how about the Abrupt Decay MW, uh, WMCQ promos? Uh, very relatively few of these lying around anymore. They came out, I think, a couple years back. Uh, market price is about $30. You might be able to get them a little lower uh, using eBay coupons or... Buy, li- buy list deals or whatever your little scam is to save some money. And there's only like eight listings on TCG right now. And the people that are holding are holding in pretty large quantity. Like there's a, a few different vendors that have 10 plus copies of this because they were probably running WMCQs and had left or co- over copies left lying around that they absorbed or they were trading at those events and got a bunch of trade-ins um, from people on the floor. Uh, bottom line is Abrupt Decay's role in Modern is lessened due to Fatal Push's appearance, but it's still a, an important card in this format and in Legacy. And this version of the card is in very, very short supply and could easily post up in the $50 to $60 range. Yeah, and I would say Abrupt Decay is also probably going to have a mini renaissance here again because Jund, which has been relatively absent from Modern, has come back in such a strong way. Abrupt Decay has always been a part of that. Still a pretty solid Cascade from Bloodbraid Elf, a little more versatile than Fatal Pushes um, since you can hit Liliana's with it or whatever other nonsense they've got on the battlefield that Fatal Push can't hit. So, uh, yeah, I mean, WMCQ promos have proven to be... I don't think we've seen any WMCQ promo reprinted with the same art at all, ever. 
Um, now, granted, that only goes back like three or four years. That's still relatively uh, reassuring. So I think I think most of these are probably pretty safe once you find them at their floor. Well, and Thalia showed tremendous price appreciation. Um, good art, four of needed in multiple decks in Modern and Legacy, and away it went. I also bought in on some Ink Moth Nexus WMCQs recently, and I think I'm holding some abrupt decay WMCQs from close to when they were released that have, haven't appreciated to this point, but I suspect they're close to their tipping point. Yeah, I would bet as well. And, you know, Thalia obviously would have increased also because the card is was useful and in demand uh like the in the need for thalia's in general increased which also pushed the wmcq up but that's what you're going to see with abrupt decay too is you know if the need for abrupt decays increases that will push the wmcq promo uh all right so my first card of the week is excuse me both of my cards this week are in pretty short supply and my buy prices might sound a little aggressive um but there are a lot more vendors than just star city and tcg so keep an eye out for these uh, in your local store cases and that type of thing. And in trade binders, you can probably catch them for a little bit cheaper. But first card this week is Worm Coil Engine. Uh, copies around $20 right now. We saw a bit of a price bump on Worm Coil Engine after the Masters 25 spoiler wrapped up and it wasn't in there. I think it's already jumped like 15, 20% over the last week. But I still think there's room to grow there, even from the 20-ish, $21, maybe $22 that it's at today. Worm, Tron is only getting better. Jund is pushing a lot of decks out of the format, which positions Tron really well. Tron is generally pretty reasonable against Jund. You stick, you know, if they don't fall in your mage, you on turn two, you just stick a worm coil engine and it just gives them absolute fits. Um, and then you carn them a turn later. Uh, it's, Tron's also good against Jace. Uh, so you have some additional demand. You have a lot of additional demand from worm coil engine as it's gotten more popular. You also just missed a good reprint opportunity. Not sure when we're going to see it again. Also in 13 or 14,000 EDH decks, very popular. Uh, Wormcoil Engine is sort of like a, the premium six mana creature in modern right now. Uh, and we have gotten pretty far away from the last reprinting. So, you know, for 20 bucks, I think you can ride these up to 40, uh, you know, unless they stick this in whatever the Commander Anthology product or whatever it is this year is. Uh, these are, are probably pretty good. And I wanted to tell you to buy the Inventions copies, but they're $100 and it's like, eh, it's kind of tough to give you that one yeah those were a lot better when they were available to us last spring at like 40 to 50 the yeah (laughs) Uh, i like this pick uh it needs a reprint tons of things dodged the bullet in m25 which means that even if we get uh another master set next november and some of these reprints show up in either as masterpieces in dominaria or in the uh, new core product that's coming out late summer, they're still only going to ch- be chipping away at an iceberg. Yeah. Yeah. And we'll, we'll we can talk about that more a little bit. Uh, what is your next card? So the other one that was on my radar, because um, I saw it pop up in the Magic Online Championships in a Grixis Control deck, I believe, was Dire Fleet Daredevil, which I talked about just like four or five weeks ago. And it was a pretty weak pick in the sense that it really hadn't shown a play pattern that justified it, it, its role as a spec. But one of the things that's made me a lot of money has been being in early on modern rare foils in and around 8 to $12 that eventually end up being $30 cards. And I'm talking about things like Eidolon of the Great Revel and Collected Brutality, Culligan's Command, Collect. Uh, collected company, all this kind of stuff. And I'm actually pretty stunned. Collected company and Coligan's Command. I was debating which of those two was going to show up in M25, and neither did. So both of those cards have room to appreciate. Dire Fleet Daredevil is not on their level, but I suspect that it is going to end up playing a role in the format at some point. It is can be leveraged to be very similar to Snapcaster Mage, which is an extremely powerful card. And even a slightly worse Snapcaster Mage might be able to get there. Um, if casting cheap instance, um, is something that those, you know, three color control decks want to be doing and the meta accommodates that, then we could see this card appreciate right now. The supply is relatively deep. And I think given its existing play pattern, you have every reason to just hold off. You could try to get these foils a little deeper down the road when, you know, enough people have given up on it. You might be able to get them in the six to $8 range. 
Um, but I would definitely, it's kind of card I would like to have, not going to rush out and buy 20 today, but I'd like to have it sitting in my cart ready to go in case I see a compelling case study develop on camera for it. Okay. I can buy it. Uh, I did. We were, uh, we're watching, I don't know who we were watching stream last night while we were hanging out, but I did see this card, uh, show up in modern in some sort of Grixis deck. Um, oh, you know, I think, I think we had the MTGO championships on. And somebody was running it. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. I saw the same thing you did. But it, it, yeah, I mean, it, it's it's essentially another Snapcaster Mage. Oh, yeah. You know, we saw, <laughs> we were laughing about the fact that Craig Wesco had Serum Visions, four Serum Visions in a deck with four Thalia. And we're like sort of bewildered by that. And then Craig Wesco's opponent played this card and cast his own Serum Visions, which is just interesting on several different levels. But it, it, it is an interesting, you know, it's a cool card, uh, a powerful effect. Supplies a little on the higher side, so this is going to be a bit of a, a bit of a longer game, I think. But it also means you can get in at, at relatively close to the floor. It's not like there's eight copies left and the cheap ones already got bought. Uh, you know, you can get in real low. So if you if you've got a lot of faith in this card, ten bucks for this, you could probably ride it up to twenty thirty dollars uh, if it really does gain a strong foothold in modern. Yeah, I mean, it it needs to show up as like at least. Uh three of and a deck that we're seeing a lot of and we're not there yet so it's it's not a high on my priority list it's just a card to yeah. keep an eye on uh cool uh my other card this week is thrun the last troll from mirrodin besieged uh copies are around 12 ish dollars or so right now supply super low uh thrun for those of you who remember is a form form on a four four hex proof who also has regenerate so he's uh he's really good in junt he's Great for the mirror match because they, the only creature in their entire deck that can attack through him is Tarmogoyth, but Thrun regenerates, so he just sits in front of Tarmogoyth and blocks all day. He's also an, a nightmare to deal with because you can't um, target him. The only way to get rid of him is with Liliana. He's also great against Jace because he's too big. He's got Hexproof again, so you can't kill him. Uh, you can't counter him either, right? Uh, wait, let me check that. It's been a while. Let me look again. Yep. Yep, yes. Yep, yep. So the yep, Jace player yep. can't counter him. They can't bounce him with Jace once he resolves. They can't remove him with a spell. And if they're playing like Supreme Verdict, they can't kill him either because you can just regenerate him. So he gives Jace player fits as well. So given, you know, <clears throat> we're seeing the rise of Jace with the Grixis control uh, and blue-white control in modern, you've seen a lot more Jund. Uh, he's good in Jund, against Jund, against Jace. In general, just a pretty well-positioned card. Supply is, again, very low. Uh, already like a 5 or 10% gain, I think, on the Masters 25 news. But from 12 bucks, I could see this guy at $20, $25, um, especially if, if you start seeing more of these in sideboards. Yeah, uh, I agree that Thrun, given his lack of reprint, um, is a reasonable target. His overall supply is very low. Foils, you can get them about 40 bucks, and there's very, very few around. So potentially targeting some foils and hoping they get from 40 to 60, um, you know, just a small handful wouldn't be a terrible idea. Yeah, I really, really, you could see original print Thrawn foils up to 70 maybe even $80. Uh, again, because if they reprint him, what are they going to... If they reprint him and his foil, that's probably a master set. But like the card quality is so crap compared to the world weight copies. Like they're, those are just going to feel and look so much better. Yeah. And original foils hold value. So they, yep, they, they, they sure do. do. All right. So you want to talk a little bit about the decks that popped up in the modern segment of the Magic Online Championships? I do. Do you not want to talk about your last card? <laughs> Uh, what was the last one on my list? <laughs> oh, yes. Selvala Stampede. I, I, I believe, I want to say that this isn't my pick so much as I heard. I think maybe Brainstorm Brewery covered this a few weeks back. Um, <laughs> and, and, and it still looks like a good one. And I, I just had it on my list to look into. And I agree with the thesis, whoever forwarded it, which is that, you know, at 3200 EDH uh, rec decks, this is probably underplayed. It's uh, a pretty big sneak attack style effect. Um, they can get you a lot of card advantage in EDH in a format that can support things that cost this much mana. And, you know, to get in on these foils, say at around 10 or 12 and expect them to get to 20 or 25 before a reprint seems pretty likely. It's definitely a powerful card. Um, gets better with the more players. These Conspiracy 2 foils have proven that they are... Uh, capable of hitting some pretty wild prices, especially on foil. So uh, I don't think that's a bad choice at all, especially as people probably start to pick up more on it than they have been. 
All right, so now that my printer's finished running, we're going to hop over to segment three, metagame week in review. Right now, the Magic Online Championships is running, and the story of the event is definitely Jund has been um, not only uh, heavily represented in the number of people who showed up with it, but also the success of the deck. Let me find this tweet from Randy. Randy Buley's. Uh, let's see. It was most played with seven copies, won 61% of its matches, 65 if you ignore mirrors. Uh, and all of the six players, of, of the six players that are five, two or better, four are on John. So definitely crushing the Magic Online Championships right now. Um, I haven't looked in the last you know 20 minutes, so I'm not sure what the status of it is up to the minute, but certainly the, the biggest part of the event. Also some blue-red control boggles, the second most played deck. Uh, we saw a little hollow one. Uh, let's see. Pew, 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 pew. So much John. Some burn, some Marty Pyromancer. There was something else in here, too, that was interesting. What was it? Uh, white, blue, death and taxes coming. That's Craig Wesco's deck, the Thalia Serum Visions deck. A Bant control deck, which is kind of funny. This is just like Bant cards I own. <laughs> it's Jay Snapcaster, Nissa Vastwood Seer, uh, Emrakul the Promise End, One Search for Azkanta. Two explorers, three time warps, a wrath of God. This this deck is this is a fun deck. Yeah, uh, this came this came out of nowhere, and I'm not sure how well it did overall. But the it's the kind of deck that's certainly worth taking a look at and uh, maybe trying out locally for funsies. Um, it's got a lot of good control elements and some ramp elements, and you're trying to get an Emrakul promise in down on the board and do some damage. Yeah, and it's Guillaume Montagnon, and he's a really good player and was a major part of the pro scene uh, up until he got thrown out of Magic for like two years back in the New Phyrexia days for leaking that God book. Um, we also saw uh, some five, two five-color zoo decks show up. I'm guessing these two guys worked together. Uh, Tribal Flames has returned with Bloodbraid Elf. Um, and interestingly enough, you now have Bloodbraid Elf and Mantis Rider, so that's a hell of a... Uh, cascade right like blood right elf and the mantis riders swing for seven haste pew, pew. it's pretty cool um yeah. popped up but overall uh i'm gonna say a relatively healthy modern format there's no tron uh and no lantern control no eldrazi uh and but there's probably more jun than wizards is necessarily thrilled about yeah, and the thing is, like, the meta is at these small-scale tournaments where pros are trying to out-meta each other, um, especially against players who have known predilections um, for certain decks, um, don't really represent what you're going to encounter at FNM. Yeah, that's absolutely true, because most of these guys are not going to show up to a GP with Boggles, because that doesn't give them a lot of room to outplay their opponents. But in a room with 16 or whatever, 24 people, and you think half of them are on Jund, and Boggles is really good against Jund, then it makes a lot more sense. Exactly. Um, I, I think I think the story here, at least you know financially, is... So first, Jace is a little less... Uh, present than I, I guess I initially thought he would. And I think he's he's not come out of the gate quite as strong as we figured for, for most people, but he's he's going to be tougher to work with relative to Blood Raid Elf. Blood Raid Elf is like, oh yeah, remember that Jun deck you played four years ago? Just pull that out of the closet, put Fatal Pushes in it, and you're done. Right? Like super easy to update decks with Blood Raid Elf because we already knew what they all were. J stacks are a lot tougher. They don't they haven't existed in modern before. So it's a lot more work to get him into it. Keep in mind it's only been two or three weeks, so it's hard to say for sure. This is a type of card that you could see sort of trickle into the format and then grow and grow as people really figure it out and like figure out how to make him work. Uh, remember that Grishel brand decks, every card in that deck was legal in the format for like four or five years, maybe even longer before it showed up and then suddenly won a GP. So sometimes it can just take a while to, to figure out the, the formula. Um, so w- what I'm taking away from this is, you know, the meta, it's not a perfect in- indicator of what the metagame is going to look like at your local store, but I do think Jund is very clearly going to be popular. A lot of players have always liked it. It was always a big part of modern, um, before Blood Raid was banned. Uh, so, you know, cards that are good in John and good against John definitely have, uh, seen their stock rise. Yeah, exactly. All right. I know you're chomping at the bit for next segment for masters 25. Let it rip James. <laughs> Let's start off with a little 
visit down memory lane. What did you tell me when I told you I was writing an article trying to predict what they were going to print in this set? Uh, I believe I said it was a futile effort and I gave up doing that years ago because Wizards always made me look stupid when I tried it. Yeah. So, I mean, I've joined you um, <laughs> on on that side of the fence. Uh, I, I, I int- intentionally entitled the article Possibilities as opposed to Predictions because I did recognize that there was, especially with this set, so many different ways they could go. And I'm not surprised that many of the cards that I put forward as things that they could include at Mythic and Rare weren't included because there was lots of good options. Um, I am surprised with the specific direction that they ended up in. It's I do think that part of it is we as players are inclined to view these sets uh, optimistically. Uh, whether or not we actually, whether or not that's how we frame it in our heads, and very few people would be inclined to call Magic players optimistic. Uh, we tend to kind of like what would be really cool and what would be exciting and what's the best way to go about this. But we in generally want a lot more to come out of these, whereas Wizards really wants to generally slow roll it more than we expect them to. Uh, and it's very easy also for players like you and I and most of the people that are heavily involved to overvalue selling the product to competitive players and really enfranchised players and undervalue that Wizards has a lot more markets they need to hit. Uh, which is how you end up with two Akromas or the five Kamigawa Dragons in the first Modern Masters, right? Like you, they they have a lot more markets to consider than we necessarily put forward. And even when we try and focus on those, we tend to not give them as much room as we should. So the the idea of trying to try of accurately predict these is always going to be difficult because we essentially just approach the problem differently than Wizards does. Yeah. So. It's weird. A lot of people, you know, I was saying critical things about this set on Twitter, and some people seem to assume that this was coming from a uh, perspective of somebody whining about not being able to make money on the set. Um, nothing could be further from the truth. This this set print, reprinted so few of the things that I have in inventory <laughs> that it's going to make me money through error, like errors of omission, right? Like many people's specs were protected by this set. And many of the things they chose to reprint would never have been things I would have chosen to speculate on. So definitely seems like there's a lot fewer daggers here than there could have been. So many fewer daggers than there could have been. And it's not like I was heavily invested in Jace, which is like really the Ord Chalice of the Void, other than having masterpiece copies, which I don't think are affected much by this reprinting. Um, Certainly wasn't invested in Ensnaring Bridges, Imperial Recruiters, Phyrexian Obliterator. Um... I mean, let's just finish that list. So the, the 15 mythics included is Jace the Mind Sculptor, Chalice of the Void, Imperial Recruiter, Ensnaring Bridge, Phyrexian Obliterator, Animar, Soul of Elements, Vendillion Click, Master of the Wild Hunt, Gisela, Blade of Goodnight, Gold Knight, Doomsday, Acroma Angel of Wrath, and Acroma Angel of Fury, Armageddon, Tree of Redemption, and Prosh, Sky Raider of Care. That is a total value of the mythics of $393 and an average of 26. So we got three angels, uh, right? So three angels. And did we, hold on, this page is loading. Did we also get two trees? Did they print? I thought, oh, okay, they did. I thought they printed the other tree. The No. Okay, I, th- I, I thought <laughs> that, I saw the that, other tree. <laughs> that that would have been funny, but no. Oh, um, okay. Oh, I feel better now. I, I, how do you personally feel about this this mythic pool as representative of 25 years of the game's history? <laughs> uh, <laughs> certainly questionable, I suppose. You know, there's a couple... I feel like they hit part of it well, right? Like, obviously, they hit Jace. Um, Doomsday, like, is very indicative. Acroma was a huge part of magic for a long period of time. Uh, I don't know about two of them. Tree of Redemption is real curious. like. That it wasn't like Garrick or something, or any of the Nissa Planeswalkers. Uh, I, I, I don't know. I guess it doesn't feel like 25 years of Magic's history. But to be fair, a set that truly felt like 25 years of Magic history would probably be a train wreck of a limited format. So I don't know. That seems like an extremely difficult thing to balance. I, I'm not sure I agree with that. I mean, other people said the same thing that like, oh, these are the choices they have to make to balance the limited format. 
excuse me. M- most of, first of all, mythics don't matter in a limited format because they show up so infrequently. What's important in terms of their contribution to the mythic format is that the the format not be so susceptible to swingy bombs from the mythic and rare slot that that whoever opens them in sealed or draft tends to win automatically. You want to have answers printed at common and uncommon that can handle just about anything that the format might throw at you so that there's there's play like that it's not just whoever gets their the most expensive card out first or or um, their mythic or rare out first. So you can make the argument that you have things you got to do to balance the limited format. But I don't think that looking at this list, that this list of mythics is limited focused. Well, I mean, Tree Tree of Redemption is not (laughs) a card that has any kind of specific role to play in that format. The the extremely odd choice to play to include two versions of a Chroma, a character that was you know, central to a storyline from 15 years ago, but hasn't had no other role in the greater history or narrative of the game. Um, and then to say, well, you know, we've got these two angels. We may as well make it three and include another random angel that nobody cares yeah. about <laughs> in, in slots that could have gone to other cards that made sense nostalgically and fulfilled similar financial requirements. Well, so something like a demonic tutor or a land tax, these are cards that people actually have nostalgia for that haven't seen um, that many printings that uh, would be great to have with new art or and or in foil and that are just notably absent and absent in the final list. No demonic tutor is certainly very curious. I don't understand that. Uh, double Chroma also very odd. <laughs> Same with the, the other mythic angel. I think when I talk, when I said, you know, Building a set that really encap- feels like it encapsulates 25 years of magic history has got to be very difficult to balance against limited. I'm saying that on not just on the mythic slot. I mean, on the entire set in general. Like the entire set is sort of missing that sense of cohesion to me. Uh, and that's where I feel like that the commons and uncommons where they have to make concessions to limited. You're right. Mythics, they should be able to just print independent of limited not care too much because again they're mythics they're not going to show up that often and as long as you've got strong like commons on commons and, and rares that you can are occasionally gonna be able to beat those mythics so that's fine the, the mythic choices are odd right it does seem like they could have put a little bit more value in there they definitely could have put cards that the two acromas really does bewilder me like why you would use a mythic slot on the second version of a card, right? Like there's just so much more of magic's history you could have included in that mythic slot. That didn't have to be expensive. Like but I think the second Acroma and the tree of redemption are probably the most egregious choices here, right? Like maybe master the wild hunt too. I don't know, but tree, tree and second Acroma, like could have been so many other things. Like what is here from weatherlight era, right? And, and, and it's not even that, you know, I've run the same spreadsheet that anybody who does the CV analysis does. And it's not like I'm delusional as to thinking that every mythic should be a $50 card. Yeah, me neither. The, the, the average value of the mythics in this set is not the issue. In fact, we'll get to that in a second. Um, but there's a perception issue where they've shot themselves in the foot by making a bunch of weird choices that don't fulfill expectations that seems like they could easily have made different choices without injuring the format because many of the choices don't seem format specific anyway. And, you know, like for instance, (laughs) you see something like Phyrexian Obligator and you think, well, there, there must be a bunch of color fixing that, or, you know, things that help you to go mono. Um, Oh wait, no, there's Animar Soul of Elements. That's a three color card. So then it's a gold focused format like M17. No, no, that's not true either. In fact, you've only got five color fixing lands at all in their filter lands. <laughs> yeah. Right? So it, so unless you get two Twilight Myers, you're probably still going to have trouble casting your obliga- obliterator. Uh, yeah, my buddy uh, who is super into limited told me that he looked through all the commons and uncommons and came out with absolutely no idea whatsoever what the limited format is supposed to be. I was like, I don't understand what any color is supposed to do. Uh, <clears throat> he's not like angry about it, but he, it was just funny because he's usually able 
to browse through a spoiler and be like, okay, this is what this format's going to be in terms of limited. And he's just completely lost here. It's a grab bag of a bunch of like moments and concepts from, and like stories from magic's past. And some of them are really cool. Like there's a bunch of things you're going to, people are going to pull off and show pictures of at their pre-release and whatever, or their, you know, local sealed event that are going to be hilarious. And that will rub us all the right way in the tickle spot. But there's also a bunch of stuff in here that just the overall cohesion, as you said, seems to be lacking because they back by not being able to lean on mechanics or themes from previous sets that they reincorporate as they did in modern masters and modern masters, 2015 and to an extent in 2017. Um, you know, it seems like they got lost along the way and you know, all, all, all I can say about what was left out and there's a long list of things that I had predicted that didn't make it in there. I mean, we didn't get the Celestial Colonnade lands. We didn't get the Scars of Mirrodin lands. So those are both back on the table for reprint at some point in the near future. Um, instead, we got the Filter lands, which was like my fourth choice for what they might include there. Um, you know, we didn't get Force of Will. We didn't get Through the Breach. We didn't get Vengevine. We didn't get Demonic Tutor. No true name nemesis. They didn't have a big, crazy dragon. We didn't even get Shivan, right? Uh, no, Shivan Dragon was not in this. So no Shivan Dragon and no Sarah Angel. Yeah, that's also questionable. No Sengir Vampire? Like, aren't these the iconic creatures we're expecting to get from the, the the days of yore? I mean, they included Fallen Angel. That's the closest we get to a, like, kind of old school specific card. That's not even that old school, right? Like, that was kind of like era, like the Silver Age, not the Golden Age. Yeah. And you no know, Stoneforge Mystic. The card that that we argued over whether or not it was Darksteel Colossus or Blightsteel Colossus or maybe it was something else ended up being Sundering Titan, yeah. a card a card nobody's clamoring for. And then like Planeswalkers have been set up in the narrative for so many years as like core to what magic's about. Like Jace is supposed to be kind of the generic dude that many magic players can just imprint themselves on. And then all the other planeswalkers give other people opportunities to see themselves in a character. And these are the central like characters of the story. And we got one in all of the mythics and one in the entire set. Like explain that to me. Like I, I predicted that Nicol Bolas was, you know, we talked, we talked last week that maybe we would get the original version and we did. So, you know, nailed it. like no birds of paradise uh did we get wrath uh we got armageddon i don't think we got wrath though no we didn't we got a chroma's vengeance or something right uh yeah something like that yeah and then a a lot of stuff from like the middle era like the modern era was left out so no bitter blossom we didn't get gadaktig um, no Avenger of Zendikar, like you mentioned last week. No Meddling Mage. No Exquisite Blood or Doubling Season that need reprints for for uh, Commander. Um, instead, they got Prosh and and Animar. Like what? And how does Birds of Paradise not make it into this set? Yeah, no Birds of Paradise is also kind of questionable. <laughs> no Snapcaster. No Dark Confidant. Like these are the cards in the the last ten years of the game that mattered. And that, you know, some had seen printings as early as a year ago. Some were not since Modern, since Modern Masters 2015. There was plenty of room to slip these in. And all I can say is that maybe we're getting these. You know, a lot of these things that they wanted to include got reserved by the teams that are working on other products that are forthcoming. I think that that's could partly be it. Um, that they've got a product, a line of products in the tank that we haven't seen yet. And these are going to come uh, and, you know, we're going to get them over the course of the next year ish or so. Uh, But there's just so many cards that didn't show up. You're still kind of left wondering, like it's a lot of cards. They have to fit in someplace. Right. Uh, I don't know. I mean, maybe it's another master set that we haven't heard about yet, but I don't, I don't love that either. Frankly, like I'm kind of over these and I think a lot of other people are too. So here's the weirdest part, though. I actually think that the EV of this set might be the best ever of any master set. I'm still running my... I've got to triple check my calculations and run it by Saffron. But the EV on the rares and mythics of this set looks to be massive. 
So for instance, if you go back and look at Saf's article about um, iconic master's values, which was one of the, you know, the worst of the master sets in terms of the EV, um, and, 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 you know, necessitated that most people had a very relatively negative reaction to the set and that there was a lot of feel-bads opening the set. And you look at the way that you, you calculate estimated value contribution, right? So you take the number of total mythics that are going to be in the set and you multiply it by, you know that there's going to be 15 of them. So you take their, their value and you mul- average their value and then you multiply it by uh, the number of times that a mythic is going to show up in a box. So you're going to get three mythics a box. If your average value is $15 a mythic, then their contribution is 45 to the box. Yeah. Follow? So you can do that for mythics and rares and then commons and uncommons. And for iconic masters, the the end number was something like the total EV was something around $216 heading into sales. So within about 10% of the MSRP. And then, of course, they collapsed quite hard because a lot of the cards included um, were not necessarily um, in high demand. And, you know, the, the biggest determining factor, the difference between something like an Iconic Masters and a Modern Masters 2017 is that Modern Masters 2017 um, spread the value out more amongst the rares and the mythics because we got the enemy fetch lands at rare, which was a big deal. And But those, you know, as we talked about last week, we saw those cards fall in the neighborhood of about 40% and rebound quite a bit of that amount because the demand pushed them uh, push them back up. So the question here is, is the massive EV that I'm seeing for this set underpinned by, you know, a bunch of cards that were primarily expensive because they were in low supply and not in high demand. So for instance, things like Imperial Recruiter seemed must have played heavily into the internal EV calculations that were done at Wizards and may explain why some of these mythics ended up so bad. Um, I mean, I don't think it excuses picking poor thematic choices, um, but it might have justified their financial choices. If you think of Imperial Recruiter as a $200 card instead of, you know, the $60 that I have it in my spreadsheet as based on what it is likely to be able to hold in a reality where there there are suddenly way more copies around. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, it's the the EV is definitely good. Uh, I guess, you know, that common and uncommon slot is so powerful. So that helps considerably. But the set in general seems to be leaving a a rough taste in people's mouths. That's for sure. And then add to that that this is still supposed to be a big box product, right? Like you're supposed to be able to find this at Target. Yeah, so I don't know. I mean, the, the EV set, the EV looks really good right now. Uh, better than some of the other ones, but I'm curious to see how that's going to hold up to months yeah, available at your big box stores. Yeah, I mean, so I posted about the commons and uncommons because there is actually a really good list of commons and uncommons, and their contribution to the box, as far as I can tell, is in the sixty to seventy dollar range. Even if that gets hacked in half, that's a massive. Yeah, that's foil utopia sprawls because we're ta- pretty cool to see. Uh, I haven't even included foils in my mm-hmm. calculation yet. Once you add the foil EV contribution, I think this is, this EV might be off the charts. So commons and uncommons from the top. At common slot, we have Nettle Sentinel, which was a $4 card up until now. Relentless Rats, which is a $2 card, which is likely to uh, regain ground. It got new art. And anybody who tries to build that stupid deck wants doesn't, like a couple dozen copies of the card, right? So um, it's not like it's under... It's the opposite of a card... <laughs> that people want less of uh, once it's reprinted. Nihil Spellbomb at $1.50 a common, Unearth at $1.50, Counterspell and Brainstorm are highly resistant despite many, many printings. Um, and Dark Ritual is like a consistent 50 cent card that you're likely to end up with a few copies of out of your box. And at Uncommon slot, you've got Street Wraith, which is currently a $9 Uncommon. Curse Catcher, that's a $9 Uncommon. And then in the four, like 3 to $5 range, you've got Utopia Sprawl, Simeon Spirit Guide, Ash Barons on only its own second printing and the first time in foil. Promise of Bunrai, um, which is probably a pretty low demand card, but it was up to $4. Ancient Stirrings, consistently strong card in modern, $350 is an uncommon. And then Boros Charm, Lightning Growth, um, both very important cards in, in modern that have been resistant reprintings. Uh, Regrowth, Fierce Empath at $2 a piece, Rancor at $1.50, Swords to Plowshares on its like seventh printing in seven years or something, and it's still holding a dollar, and Swiftfoot Boots at a dollar, which will be the first time it's available in foil. 
that is a tremendous list and a ton of value that people are probably underestimating in this set. I, I'm sorry. Did you say first time Swift at Boots is available in foil? Isn't it? No, it was Magic 2012 originally. Oh, okay. But still, oh. th- those... I think those foils are not cheap, though. Yeah, exactly. Because it's the this will only be the second foil printing then. And yeah, and the first one was <laughs> eight years ago. Yeah, they're $15 foils right now. <clears throat> yeah. And, and you know, we're getting a foil in every pack. So the foil contribution is not insignificant. The other thing is that, uh, as I posted on Twitter um, the other day, the number of rares over $10 and number of rares over $20 is much higher in this set than it was even in Modern Masters 2017. Um, you know, you don't have that nice block in the forty to fifty dollar, thirty to fifty dollar range um, that you had because of the uh, enemy fetches in that set. But Rashad imports a ninety dollar rare, Azusa Lost but Seeking's thirty five. All of the filter lands were in the twenty to thirty dollar range. Thalia was up to twenty. Summoners Pact was just under twenty. Miko Koro Center of the Sea was fourteen dollars. Pendlehaven and Coalition Relic and Magus of the Wheel, Protean Hulk and El- Eladamri's Call were all between ten and fifteen dollars. And then you got a, a bunch more rares that aren't bulk. That's the key. In prior sets, we've seen ten to fifteen rares under a dollar, and in this case, we've got a much thicker stack of rares in the $2 to $5 range. Now, many of these cards, I would argue, as others have, are are not going to be uh, easy, are not going to recover easily once they crash because their demand was about supply. A lot of these cards are just seeing uh, a printing after quite some time without one. However, I, this EV of the set, despite how weird the set feels and how much of a miss it feels as a player, I think financially, the set actually might be much better than people realize. Which is, okay, so then that makes it a difficult question for us because it's like, okay, there's a lot of value packed in these boxes, but player reception is pretty low, which would typically be a really good recipe because that means people are going to kind of stay away from it. They're not going to be super excited about it. Cards will drop. There won't be that many boxes open. You'll be able to get them for cheap. And then suddenly a year later, everything will be really expensive and you can... Uh, capitalize on that but it's widely available uh i like the same way iconic masters is which makes it tougher because that means there's going to be just a ton of boxes out there uh available at some point in time and on top of that uh the card quality still sucks um which i don't know how much that really matters to people we don't have a really good feel for for how that changes uh prices at all we know the original foils have always been valuable but beyond that it's hard to say but I, I don't I don't know what to make of this yet, whether or not we can I, I'm not sure what the best way to to profit on this is going to be or if there will be as much room for it as we would like to think there is. So I ordered my boxes on eBay via Sports and More, which by the way is <laughs> if you don't care about supporting your local LGS or you don't have one and you're just interested in the lowest price, you're going to have trouble beating Sports & More, who is just defining the booster box game right now with the lowest possible cost options on pre-order. If you want your Dominaria boxes, that's probably where you're going to get them on eBay. I got my boxes at $155. Um, I think those boxes are going to be just fine. Um, there are some variants here where you could end up with the ac- double Acroma Tree of Redemption <laughs> mythics in your box, which is going to sting... Um, file for reimbursement. But I think if point. you get any, you know, two of the the top half of the mythics, so anything from Vendillion Click through to Jace the Mind Sculptor, there's like one, two, three, four. Yeah, there's there's eight mythics over that started over twenty five, and we can expect them all to bleed forty percent value. But my quick calc says EV this box might be as high as two fifty to three hundred. And if that bleeds 40%, then that could take you down to something like 180 at the Valley. So you're still up 30 bucks, even at the worst point. And then some of these cards are going to recover hard. So for instance, given the particular configuration of the Mythics, I think Jace and Chalice of the Void have a very good chance of recovering well and are almost certainly targets. If you get Jace's down in the $60 to $80 range, I think that's going to be equivalent to when you could buy Liliana's a few years back at $55 and nobody was bothering to. And now here we see her a reprint later and still over $100 pushing $120. 
yes. Yeah. And well, Liliana just bumped up to, right? Because she dodged A25. So she jumped from like 100 to 125. But yes, I think Chalice and Jace are real, probably some of your better bets. Jace, especially at the 50 to $60 range. Um, also, if you believe in him as a modern contender uh, who just hasn't found his home yet, then all, especially so. Uh, I do wonder if they're going to start putting Chalice out a little more frequently than they have been in the past. But but yeah, in general, those are your best bets. Imperial Recruiter is going to be tough, though. That one, that's a tough one. I didn't. I told you last week that I didn't think they'd put it in the set, and then they did. So there you go. I'm me and my big mouth. I, I agreed. I was fully in agreement. Um, that is going to be tough. So I think the pre-orders are like sixty bucks or something like that, or they were. I can see that taking a dip, uh, but because there's just not that many people that need this card, right? Like it's not extremely yep. great in Commander. It's fine, but it's not like amazing. Uh, you really only needed it if you wanted to play like that legacy deck that ran it. Um, but that's, they ended up switching to Imperial, whatever. It's not because they, they printed the white one that goes the other direction. So instead the white of recruiter, well, I'm sorry, the white recruiter. Yeah. yeah. The white recruiter, which is apparently better in that deck. So I don't know. I feel like the floor on Imperial recruiter could fall out pretty hard and you're not going to see that recover too great just because how many people actually need this card. I think at rare it would have been under twenty, and at mythic it's probably a thirty to forty dollar card. Yeah, can people want it for cubes and stuff like that? I guess. Yep, there's demand. Don't get me wrong, and there's a lot of people that you know have had their eye on it as a thing they might acquire. But the number of people that say they will buy a card when it gets cheaper versus the number of people that actually make a move, <laughs> those are dramatically different. Yeah, um, this is one of the arguments I have with people all the time. Like for instance, with Pro, you know, the Tolarian Academy, the professor about you know how cheap would modern need to be to make a meaningful difference in how many people would play the game. Like, what does the average deck need to cost before it matters? And and I think that the reality is you need to move way further down the cost curve before you can get a commensurate amount of uh, increase in activity. There, there's a lot of people that will complain about something and then not take action when it's on sale. I mean, I'm not paying $80 for that video game. Okay, this week it's on for 40 They still didn't buy it. Mm-hmm. What does that tell you, right? And we're going to see the same kind of thing with some of these cards. But Chalice of the Void moving from rare to mythic, pretty big deal. Um, suggests that it is likely to recover. It's a card that is never played as anything but a four of and is played in at least three formats. So, um, you know, definitely got my eye on that. I think that the filter lands lack um, demand pattern outside of EDH for the most part. So, um, because the thing in modern is that you never want to be, it's a colorless land until you get one of the colors that you need. So it can never be the first appearance of the pip that you need to cast the card you're trying to cast and so it's not reliable enough well and that's not entirely true because if you don't have any red but you have all blue and then you draw cascade bluffs now you have both colors sure but you still had to if you have that in some other color if you have two of these for instance yes true. you only have you only have colorless mana and that just can't be in modern you got you have to be hitting your hitting curve because the format's so unforgiving now that your first four turns need to unfurl properly, and there are five or six other cycles that do it better. So that's why we haven't really seen tremendous demand um, on those cards for modern. And I think that the bottom falls in on this. You're going to see these as cheap as ten to eighteen dollars. <throat> I wonder if they're going to leave Chalice at Mythic. Like that seems like the card they could do Mythic here and then switch later on. We haven't seen a mythic go back to rare that ended up there, right? I don't know. I'd you'd ha- I'd have to go back and do research on that one. Yeah, I don't think so. I mean, Rashad and Port, I think, is going to go the way of Caracas um, or Wasteland. Um, you know, cards that are in theory useful in decks like Maverick and Legacy, um, where it's part of a Death and Taxes style of play. But and the art's great. The new art looks fantastic. Those foils are going to be a thing. Um, but I think I would be looking at the foils as opposed to the card itself. Um, you know, the foil will chase the non-foil down the curve, and then people are going to realize that a card like this, the only time in this art in foil with the set symbol um, in the text box, you know, that'll have some demand a little further down the road. But I would expect the floor to fall out on port for sure. Yeah, that's another one that just, you know, if you really needed this for legacy, you probably already bought it. If you didn't desperately need it, then what do you need it for? Like, it just doesn't seem like there's a huge market of players that were waiting for this card that can now suddenly buy it. 
there will be some, and people have taken to Twitter to tell me that they have been waiting and now they can buy it. Sure, I you know there's always going to be some number of people, but I just don't see a huge market for that card. It's fine in EDH. It's nothing special. Yeah. So should you buy a box of Magic 25? Um, I think that to get max value out of this experience, um, I expect the draft format is not going to be an all-time great, but will be some kind of wonky, potentially enjoyable experience. And if you can rope your friends into playing uh, through a draft with a box, and then you're going to keep the cards... I think you'll easily get your value out of that because you're going to be adding a bunch of stuff to your collection. You can sell off a couple of cards you don't need. If you know you're never going to play Jason Modern, go ahead and flip the copy you luck into and pay for most of your box and potentially get a free draft out of that. And there's going to be, like I said, a ton of commons and uncommons that are just good to have in your collection that come out of this set. Um, They really have stocked the bottom end of the curve. The the important thing to remember here, though, is that with the the low end of the curve being good, that's great. But it also means that it's going to be harder for the average player to probably recoup some of this because if you have like a lot of value tied up in dollar hymnatrox and hymnatrox uh, and counter spells and stuff like that, most people who are just playing at like their local store who bought a box to have fun with aren't going to have an out for those. They're just going to end up sitting and their collection at home. So just keep that in mind that like, if you don't have an out for those, it doesn't matter how much they're worth. Cause you're not actually doing anything with them. Yeah. I don't. And you know, one of our followers on Twitter, Nathan, who's always up in our ass with fact checking, um, mentioned the same kind of thing. Said like, Hey, you're always telling us don't, you know, deal with cards under $5. What up? And it's not that I'm saying that this contributes to the EV in terms of what you're going to get out of it financially in terms of what you can sell. I'm just saying that you can absorb those portions into your collection. Like you, you may need a pot. Everybody should own some Swords of Plowshare, some Counter Spell, you know, Nettle Sentinel for your, your elf, casual elf deck or whatever. There's a bunch of value there that you can get just as a collector. Like even if you're into the MTG finance side of things, doesn't mean that, you know, you and I are not not players. We're not vendors only. Um, if I pop a box and pull something hot that I want for my attracts deck in EDH, it slides right in there. And, you know, if the price gets high enough, maybe I'll consider selling. But in the meantime, you can get added utility out of this stuff by actually playing with it. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, for sure. That's And that's fine, too. I'm just, you know, kind of warning people a little bit that it, it can be tough to make use of those, you know, $1 to $3 cards in a meaningful way. Yeah. Um, okay. Anything else you have to say on the topic here? Overall, I'm disappointed as a player. Financially, I think the site's going to be better than people think. Okay. All right. Well, that is a wrap for episode 108. Where can our listeners find you, James? You guys can find me on Twitter at MDG Critic, as well as via my weekly articles on mdgprice.com. All right. And I'm Travis Allen. I'm on Twitter at Wizard Bumpin, B-U-M-P-I-N. Right every Monday for MTG Price uh, with the Watchtower series. And I occasionally show up on the Cartel Aristocrats podcast. I'd also like to remind our listeners to check out the MTGPrice.com Pro Trader service for just $4.99 a month or $49.99 per year. You can get early access to this podcast, fantastic articles by the best MTG finance minds in the business, and a sweet set of online collection management and buy list tools will drive better returns and save you money playing Magic the Gathering. Um, I'd also like to point out that the boxes I am most interested in for uh, Modern Masters 25, or Modern, it's not Modern Masters, Masters 25 is Japanese boxes. And if you're in Japan and would like to work out some kind of deal to send us some of those, that would be wonderful. (laughs) Okay, sure. (laughs) I suppose uh, some of those Japanese foils would be pretty nifty. Mm -hmm. All right. Uh, okay. Well, that brings us to the end of episode 108. James, I enjoyed our chat this week as always, uh, and I will see you next week. Thank you, Travis. And we'll see you guys next week on another episode of MTG Fast Finance. Mm-hmm.